0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the editor for A Better Peace, So military organizations are often caught between past and present uh, and the future. On one hand, the military has to prepare for an unknown future, but in order to do that, they often look toward the past. And at the same time, military organizations are constantly learning and adapting. That is, militaries are fundamentally concerned with the production and transfer of knowledge. And so if someone comes up with a good idea, how do military organizations work to promulgate the idea and to ensure its adoption? Uh, the challenges of becoming a learning organization are significant, but worthwhile to think about. So on today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at a historical case of military learning, and that is the development of the light infantry in 18th century Britain. And I've asked Dr. Hugh Davis to come and join me in the studio. He was a historian and a faculty member at the Defense Studies Program in King's College, London. He specializes in the military history of the 18th and 19th centuries. So Hugh, welcome to War Room.
1: Uh, thanks, Jackie. So great to be here. Really, really grateful for thinking of me, to invite me to this.
0: All right. So I your research specialization is pretty far away from, from my own. Um, so can you give us a primer for the 18th century uh, in Britain? What are the important uh, tactical, operational and strategic problems sort of facing the military? And how are they addressing these challenges that they have?
1: So in terms of British military history, we've got the... Uh, Marlborough campaigns that come to a conclusion in 1714 and this is a moment of uh, strategic victory for the British and 30 years of peace pretty much follow on from that. During that time the British army this is massive generalization, but in broad terms. It's okay, it's a podcast. <laughs> the, uh, the British Army sort of rests on its laurels and begins to stagnate. And I think like is, everything's fine. Yeah, and this is not an uncommon problem for militaries who have experienced, who have experienced strategic victory. You know, they're the masters of war. They don't mm-hmm. need to learn anymore. Yeah, it's
0: the losers who are often innovating yeah, and thinking it, about exactly. You know,
1: innovation is bred by uh, a combination of fear, humi- uh, humiliation, and, and, and defeat. And those those things prompt militaries to respond, and victory prompts the opposite. So, for the 30, in this thirty year period of peace, the British army is 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 is, is stagnating. Um, and in seventeen forty, well, the seventeen forties, a new war breaks out with with France, the War of Austrian Succession, and um, Britain initially performs quite well, but in seventeen forty five, suffers a really Quite surprising um, defeat at the hands of Marshal Maurice de Saxe, um, and uh, it's, it's an unexpected defeat. Initially, it looks like the battle's going very well, and but it emerges quite quickly that um, the the British are are facing quite significant problems. Shortly after that, in September. 1745, um, uh, the British Army suffers another terrible defeat at Preston Prestonpans. This time, at the hands of the of the Scottish rebels, the Jacobites in the in the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745 six, and uh, that sends another huge um, uh, shock wave through through the British Army. And then, ten years later, another catastrophic defeat at the Monongahela uh, in the Ohio Valley. Um, uh, which again, it's damn America. <laughs> well, actually the French, the French and the Indians, um, <laughs> that then uh, again it signals that the British Army hasn't been learning from um, the the defeats that it experienced in the 1740s, and it needs to really start thinking new and innovative ways of responding to the to these problems, um, and. So a combination of all of those circumstances over the course of the next twenty years or so, prompt the British Army to start looking at continental military theorists. So prior to 1745, they're all looking at military history, their own military mm-hmm. history, uh, Marlborough's campaigns, but also the greats. They're comparing themselves to Caesar and uh, as and one does. Yes, yeah. so you know that that's the sort of reading material of the British Army. And Ira Gruber did a really great uh, book called "Books in the British Army," which analyzes all of that uh, reading material he sort of traces it to the 1745-55 period that sort of switches it from looking at their own glory to the glory of others. So uh, they start reading books, the, the theories by Fred, Frederick the Great, Maurice de Saxe, a guy called Henry Lloyd, uh, who is a, um, a, a British theorist, but he never serves in the British Army, um, and, uh, and various others. And all of this starts a... A, a, a process of thinking about how uh, the the British should respond to these to these problems, um, and one of the sort of main innovations is the development of light infantry, uh, which is really a response to the problem in, problems in America. The Monongahela had been a a, 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 a huge surprise defeat of a, a, a couple of redcoat regiments. Uh, a, a, uh, nearly 2,000 strong, supported by provincial um, uh, American forces, uh, one of whom is George, uh, you know, is, is George Washington, and uh, they uh, are defeated by 700 or so French and Indian warriors, who are um, using the local terrain, the trees to cover, um, hiding. They're not operating in the in the traditional tactics mm-hmm. that the redcoats are. So they're drawn up in line and column. And the French and Indians are responding much more innovatively, using the terrain around them. Now, there's been a lot of uh, research and stuff uh, produced. David Preston, for example, has produced a brilliant book on, uh, on on the defeat at the Monongahela, which debunks a lot of the myths around that. But the perception, and it's really the perception that matters here. It's not reality is less important than yeah, what the, people the story, think is happened. story, the story that they tell about yeah. what happened. Yeah, the narrative, and this prompts the British to start thinking about maybe we should start looking at light infantry as a means of responding to that. So uh, you start to see the development of uh, or, or the use of local forces, the rangers, for example, and, um, and also uh, uh, the creation of dedicated light infantry units in the British Army during the French and in- Indian War. Um, these ideas then get sent home there's a bit of skepticism about about whether or not light infantry is really useful in the european context because you know there's not that many forests that people fight in in, in europe mm-hmm. um so uh, how how do these ideas translate and this then uh, combined with ideas coming from the subcontinent from from india uh, which again provides a different context all of this starts to uh, uh create a, a real really vibrant way of thinking about how uh the british army should, should respond and it's important to put that in context it's a vibrant but contained okay. um uh, 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 um uh, a set of ideas because there are people in the british army who are very keen on innovation and 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 reform and you know having new ideas um and then there are those who are not who are very conservative and want to you know that you know we should be uh, having a too deep line right. with you know a, a, a maneuvering column and, and European tactics and, are the are the way forward the and way light forward. infantry is not.
0: So this seems like a common sort of story when we think about a new idea and the like you said the production of knowledge and the sort of dissemination of it that you can fall maybe into into two camps right the the innovators the people who are seeing a, a need to change and need to do something different and a more conservative element which isn't isn't operating with malign intent. They're not trying to, to stifle mm. um, effective reform, yeah. e- reform or or what's going to be militarily effective. But there is a competition between ideas about what needs to happen, um, and these seem directly related to ideas about what you think the future of warfare. Is going going to look like, mm-hmm. and where you're going to be fighting, and against whom, mm-hmm. and and how. So how does that how does that competition of ideas play out in this in this case?
1: So over the course of the last half of the 18th century, you start to see the gradual um, uh, employment of uh, companies of light infantry in each regiment, and then the formation of light uh, light infantry regiments. So it, on it starts their own. sort
0: of small, uh, and then
1: yeah, and and gets larger. Um, <clears throat> And this is prompted by the rise to the top of the ranks of um, uh, uh, those who have experience in fighting in America, um, and uh, uh, so people like Sir John Moore, who has, you know, very early in his career spends time in, in North America, but also in the West Indies, um, and and sees how light infantry can be employed in a, in a variety of contexts, not just in the way in which it had been employed in North America. Uh, and then you get to a uh, campaign in Egypt in 1801 where uh, the British army successfully employ a combination of tactics where you get the standard European tactics light, uh, line, column, and then on the flanks, light infantry using terrain to, to uh, protect the flanks most importantly, but also to use that terrain in order to draw the French um, who they're attacking in uh, yeah. I- I- and, and, and draw, the, draw them into a battle. And this works fantastically effective. It's effectively a mixed-order approach. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's a, a sort of textbook use of those, of those tactics. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about the Egyptian campaign, from the perspective of somebody who wants to look at how knowledge is disseminated and transmitted where there is no formal... Knowledge dissemination capacity. You know, there's no lessons learned process in the mm-hmm. British Army of the eighteenth century. There's no. There's not even really a formal educational establishment um, until 1799, for that matter. Uh, and uh, the, the Egyptian campaign is really fascinating because uh, it comes at the end of an eighteen-month-long deployment to the Mediterranean, where the British this army of thirty to forty thousand troops have been floating around in the Mediterranean looking for targets of opportunity. Um, and what do soldiers do when they're cooped up on 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 ships, on, on tra- troop ships, or on, uh, you know, maybe they're stationed in Gibraltar or Menorca or Malta? What are they going to talk about? So they're going to talk about their pre- past experiences. Tell war um, stories, right? Yeah, exactly. And so you've got this sort of informal uh, uh, sort of learning network starts to develop the problem is proving it because no one writes down what they talked about at dinner or you know in their mm-hmm. diary is not nowhere near as dull as saying uh you know at dinner we had a conversation about our last campaign that's that's not the sort of thing people record in and diaries and drawing maps and yeah sort of doing but some people do you know, some
0: probably lots c- of fun at dinner. You
1: know, well, some kind of weird people do, you know. Uh, and so they they record their you know, conversations about, about the last battle they fought that they had at dinner, and we can sort of cross reference that with other people's diaries who were at the same dinner, because we know it's a regimental mess. We find the other people who were at that dinner; and they don't talk about that. They don't talk about the dinner. They talk about you know things that were going on that were interesting, like you know battles and so forth. If if nothing was happening that day, they would just say the weather was nice today or something so there, there would be nothing mm-hmm. n- no real entry in that diary but some people do record it in quite some detail um uh, and then they also do things that are i find fascinating I, I had no idea that this happened but i found so much evidence of it happening they visit battlefields um and it's so logical that they would do that i mean why wouldn't they uh, so they go and see the the previous um sites so in when they're floating around the Mediterranean, they stop in Menorca, and they go and see the beach that, uh, that had been used as the landing area for the recapture of Menorca in 1798. And they, ex- you know, they, they discuss how the, the, the so troops are so these ashore. aren't
0: long-ago battles. These are no, very really recent, recent.
1: battles, yeah. yeah. I mean, somewhere long ago, like when they're at Gibraltar, sure. they go and see the siege works of Gibraltar. Um,
0: so these are like informal Staff yeah, like, I'd right they like, yeah, I want yeah. to go. Basically, yeah.
1: So they want to go and see what happened, uh, have a chat about it. Um, and we, so this diarist, um, his name is Christopher Healy Hutch- Hutchinson, kind of depressive sort of chap. But um, the historians, sort uh, of a, a dream, dream, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone else is reading the diaries of the battles, and I'm looking at these ones and I'm like, what was he talking about dinner <laughs> over, over dinner that night? And and he talks about going to see this this, this beach with John Moore, with his brother John, who is the second in command of the, of the army, um, with several others who, who, you know, um, uh, who are similarly minded. And they, I mean, he doesn't talk about what they did there, but you wouldn't go to this place and not talk about the, I mean, he sure. says, we went, to, we went to visit the beach that uh, Charles Stewart landed in retaking Minorca, So they obviously talked about the battle because they knew they knew what the site was and why yeah, it was why it was important Exactly.
0: So as as the sort of advocates for the light infantry are are working to to use it to integrate it into the British military what what setbacks do they do they face what sort of obstacles or opposition is there?
1: Well the principal opposition and I I don't want to sort of it would be harsh to say it's like severe opposition mm-hmm. but so uh, the european school if you will of military thinking um influenced by frederick the great and their experiences um in the seven years war um the war of austria ex- a, a succession all of that indicates that reg- you know really sig- uh, strict discipline um uh, ensuring that you know soldiers know to maintain line, mm-hmm. to uh, how to form line and into column, how to form square from line and from column, all of that is you know, rigorously trained, yeah. and you need a. These
0: are the hallmarks of yeah. Frederick's yeah great exactly battles. This yeah. is how how he wins in part. It,
1: it, absolutely, you can't you can't deny it. But Frederick is used to operating on terrain that you know wide open terrain that is uh, uh, enables that sort of manoeuvre, and it's from that that the British principally derive their their I suppose you'd call it doctrine for for drill and, and and so forth. Um and that's devised by General Sir David Dundas, who uh in uh seventeen ninety two pr- publishes Principles for Military Maneuver, which is you know the standard line, column, square infantry manual, not a mention of light infantry in there. Hmm. And so you then get lots of light infantry officers, um Sir John Moore, Eyre Coote, who are Pub, not, they're not publishing. They're writing in their in their journals. Their response to that: what the light infantry um, uh, principle of military manoeuvre should look like. You know, this is how you use light infantry in the field. This but it's is sort how, of
0: developing in parallel,
1: yeah, to some of the and, official and quite informally. So you got the, this, these ideas are being obviously transmitted by correspondence, by conversations um, uh, throughout the army, but not in a formal context like Dundas's. Uh, document was, um, so <clears throat> it's not that Dundas was opposed to the use of light, light infantry. He thought it was the, the pejorative term is, you know It's, it's very American. So we He's are, using we, air we, quotes. You uh, can't see uh, them. But. Uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> I thought maybe the tone of voice would indicate that. But yeah. So uh, 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 very American. Um, the bush fighting not school. Professional, of, uh, sc- not professional. Yeah. Exactly. What real militaries do. Yes. And this is um, sort of. Re, uh, It causes this tension between the European school and the American school. Um, But Egypt changes that to some extent because it demonstrates that actually the two can be integrated together. You can have this mixed order and you can utilize it more effectively. And the Duke of York, who is the commander-in-chief of the British Army at this point, is really Mm reform-minded. And uh, uh, just a few uh, weeks ago, I was at the Royal Archives looking at his his papers. And York is fascinating because he's got... This he's really reform-minded. He's innovation-minded, Um and when people write to him through the 1780s and 90s, talking about you know I've got this new design musket, which I think would be really useful for the British Army, and he sends this on you know to the King, to others, you know have a look at this. This might this might be revolutionary. Turns out probably not, but. You know he so he's he's pushing the ideas mm-hmm. out. So York is quite clearly this sort of nodal point in this network. It informal. becomes a sort
0: of champion.
1: Yeah, and uh, so when a, if somebody has a good idea, and he they have the right level of patronage and influence, then they can get that idea to York. That that innovation will be passed on. And in eighteen hundred, well, seventeen ninety nine. Several things happen. First of all, he approves the formation of the Royal Military College, which becomes the first real military education establishment in the in in Britain, um, and uh, it gets going really in eighteen o three. He uh, approves the formation of the Depot of Military Knowledge, which is the first real attempt to gather in one place all of the military histories of of Britain, mm-hmm. a huge collection of maps of military campaigns uh, and intelligence uh, information about the French army about uh, uh, lots of other things I mean that's the first time you get an institutional operation in Britain for that Um, and he also authorizes the formation of the experimental rifle uh, uh, brigade and eventually its establishment in um, Shorncliffe in Kent uh, where uh, the the rifle brigade is effectively uh, trained and this is the the use of light infantry tactics using a brand new the brand new baker rifle which is much more accurate than the brown best musket it can fire at far uh, larger distances. And so it, it, be, it can't be the weapon of choice for the British Army because it takes a long time to load. Mm-hmm. You need to be better trained in order to use it. It's therefore more there are expensive. Yeah. to it. But you can get a small number of men dressed in green who are able then to hide, you know, camouflage, and they can use it to disrupt enemy advances. Uh, and so he, he, those three things are, are instituted by York, and that then allows these innovations to become much more... Um, uh, sure footed within, within the sure. army. There's still resistance, but over, but over the course of the next eight years, you get the formation of the Light Division, which is used by the Duke of Wellington in, in the peninsula to great effect, uh, a much better understanding of intelligence and the use of maps. And so the mapping mm-hmm. trans- is transformed in the, in the early 19th century. Uh, the use of mobile printing presses to print the maps. I mean, completely. Brilliant. So it's a
0: confluence of, of technology, of networks, yeah. um, of experience using them in in battles in different contexts. Exactly,
1: it's a melting pot of all of these things sure. are starting to come together.
0: So I think this this gets us to maybe the the, the turn toward the the contemporary. Um, both of us sort of work in environments where where historians are are some of the people who talk to contemporary audiences, uh, and innovation, military learning. These are certainly topics. Um, that are widespread in contemporary discussions about national security and international relations and defense uh, and, and military um, organizations as well. So what, what can this historical case of the 18th century and the development of the light infantry um, tell us about military innovation and, and learning for a contemporary audience?
1: So I'm. I'm gonna. Uh, we're obviously taking a big leap here yes. from a couple, <laughs> basically couple the beginning centuries. of the 19th century <laughs> to the beginning of the 21st century, and there's a lot of stuff that happens between the periods we've just been talking about and, 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 and now. So I'm gonna give a few shout-outs to a couple of colleagues um, in, in the UK whose work I think is really important and who you might want to uh, have on future war rooms. I don't, I don't know. Um, but one of my colleagues, Amy Fox, uh, published a book a couple of years ago um, called Learning to Fight, and it's about the learning ne- networks in the British Army of the First World War. Um, it's a. it won the British Army Book of the Year Award and just recently the Templar first uh, first book award as well. So it's uh, it's a brilliant um uh, analysis of, of learning. Um and another one is my head of department, Bob Foley. I'm not just doing it because he's head of department, but because <laughs> That's his work just who he is. His, uh, his work is, is great on this and he talks about uh comparing the British and the German armies in the in the First World War as well. And this is this allows me now to Sort of uh, identify the sort of progression over the next two over the two centuries between my period and, and now, because <clears throat> what seems to be common to my period period to uh, the First World War and to uh, the current period, I think is is the the sort of strategic culture of the of the British Army, um, and what is I think really important is understanding the the nature of that culture because um, the British Army's I mean, unique sort of organization, the, the inf- informal nature of these learning networks, whether they're in the 18th century, the, the early 20th century, or now, is really what makes the British Army function in this way. It's not really set up for formal lessons learned. The British Army now and I hope I'm forgiven for saying this, is really terrible at, le- at learning lessons. You know, so much so they've changed it from lessons learned to lessons identified because <laughs> they haven't, le- you know, really learned the lessons. So that, uh, it it's great that they've identified the lessons. Deeply British. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, but, and, and it's because I think they're trying to impose this, this formal learning mm. style on a, on a cultural, an organizational culture that isn't really set up for formal learning. Yeah.
0: Um, I think you can make many of the same arguments about the Americans. Yeah, and their their attempt to formalize.
1: Yeah, and I, lessons I,
0: I, learned are are really yeah. problematic.
1: Well, I'm I'm no expert on the American Army, but it certainly strikes me that the the, the similarities. You know, it's the American Army born originally of the British Army. Uh, you know, that those parallels surely must exist. Uh, whereas in the 18th century in the in the in the first world war and and, and to some extent now there is a constant effort to try and almost uh, germanize the mm-hmm. the british army which a german army is is much better at, at formal lear- learning processes um the institution of a formal learning a, a, le- a lessons learned process whether it be under frederick the great's a uh, 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 leadership the leadership of the german army in the first world war or or now it's it's much more set a better set up for that and it
0: matches their strategic
1: yeah you know, their strategic well. outlook yeah and uh, uh what my uh colleague bob foley argued in 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 one of his pieces on this is that the the German army, you know, I guess every six months, lessons learned document goes back from each of the front line units, it's coordinated by headquarters, and then, and then a, a single document is sent out. This is how you know, you know. These are the reforms that need to be introduced, and out of that you get adaptation. So very slow, incremental changes that over the course of the war fundamentally transform mm-hmm. the way the German army operates. But it's very slow. Nothing like that in the British army. It's nothing like that in the 18th century. Not like that in the First World War but there's you've got these informal networks, patronage people who know each other in with the right people uh, new ideas get per, uh, get sort of pushed up to the to the higher levels and um out of that for example, the tank is is, oh, yeah. is invented, and that's not an adaptation that's an innovation i mean they're not very good at using it but but they've the innovated it
0: comes over comes over time as they figure out how to use them well
1: they then adapt to using it but the 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 tank itself is an innovation, and uh, 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 but you would never get the tank invented by the German army because it's it, it's too much of an innovation. You know they're more uh, set up for, uh, for adaptation. I find I find that fascinating. I think that's true today as well. Where there is much more prospect for innovation if the correct sort of parameters for what is required to create innovation are understood. Um, and this comes back to someone I mentioned quite early on in, the, in, in, in our conversation a, a chap called Henry Lloyd, Morris de Sax and uh, uh, th- those those writers who argue that um, <clears throat> you must understand national character in order to understand how an army functions and uh, it's much better to understand the soldier as they are than trying to make them what you would like them to be mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, so they're talking about the, the character of the individual and what Lloyd is talking about. It's much better to take uh, the British soldier for what it is than trying to make them into a Prussian soldier. And I think that's true then is true in the First World War, it's true now.
0: That you can work to create space, to create the networks, to create yeah. the so innovation environments. Um, exactly. And understand incubate.
1: Understanding how your army as an organisation works, your army as a collection of individuals work uh, together and that that will then prompt the, 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 the sort of uh, innovation and learning that you, that you need to happen, rather than trying to force it to do so in a certain way.
0: So there's a compelling argument for our listeners about understanding um, sort of deep societal culture, national culture, strategic culture, martial culture, all of those things um, as a way to understand learning and knowledge within militaries and to understand innovation in particular. So, Hugh, thanks so much for coming and talking to us uh, about the 18th century but helping us think about the 21st. Uh, And it's been a pleasure to have you on War Room. I
1: really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, the War Room Podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening.